0: You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. Welcome back to another episode of Partnernomics Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Brigman. And we've got a special guest and a special company that we're going to be highlighting today, Mr. Richard D'Souza. Uh, Richard is with SCORE. He's been with SCORE for a number of years. And, and I've, I had the pleasure, had the honor of being able to work with Richard's team for about three months, taking them through um, our sequence of, of courses and I got to learn so much about you know, Richard, his team, the insurance business. I got to learn a lot about that stuff and the great work that their team is doing and I think just like a lot of companies, as we see ourselves sitting in the middle of uh, change, you know, is change a threat or is it an opportunity? I think the answer is yes. And uh, and Richard showed that it's it's about taking opportunities and, and turning those into value for your clients. And I had an opportunity to learn so much from him. So I'm looking forward to seeing if I can get him to share his insights with you. Richard, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Mark, for having me. And
1: I will say we enjoyed The three months with you and we felt like you were part of our team and some of the discussions you were, you know, I can't even believe we were kind of just sharing openly and talking about what was going on. Admittedly, some of uh, of it for you was kind of like a jet flying over your head. What are these guys talking about? But it was great. Really enjoyed it. So thank you for having me. It's a real honor.
0: Well, Richard, I'd love to just kind of kick off podcast to, to understand, you know, our, our different guests' perspectives. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, so you're leading a, a solid, solid team of partnering professionals there at SCORE now, but were you always in uh, the insurance business? Did you always know you wanted to go to senior leadership and, and be running partnerships? No, not necessarily. I think like a lot of folks,
1: you know, um, I, I do believe in in the saying that you know, your job chooses you. You don't necessarily always choose your job. I did I did study in finance, I did uh, have interest, but it was very tangential. And so being in the insurance field is really by by accident. Um, so starting uh, very young in my early 20s. Um, and grew up in Montreal, Canada. And so, you know, spend time doing that and then joined the firm that was, um, which is called Remark, which is a direct distribution consultancy business owned by Score and worked in many markets across the world and lived in different countries and learned a lot, you know, working in, um, in that space. And that's really where I started specializing more and more in insurance, and then joined the parent company um, in, you know, to, to be in the role that I'm, I'm in now. So it, it really wasn't um, it wasn't planned, but I will say the more I've gotten into it, the more I really really enjoy the industry because of the the true impact that insurance has on uh, people's lives, and you know it's it's a difference between especially when well life insurance it, it's a difference between someone, it's hard enough to lose a parent um, or lose parents, but to also have financial hardship as a result of that um, is even harder. Yeah.
0: So Richard, if you would, I'd love to kind of share more about SCORE and SCORE's businesses, right? It's a a Parisian, uh, an international multi-billion dollar insurance company specifically, or at least pieces of it are, are in the reinsurance space. So I got to learn a lot about these different parts. If you would, just kind of Paint the picture of, of what SCORE is and a little bit more about the company.
1: Sure. So SCORE is the fourth largest reinsurer in the world, by uh, counted by premium size. Um, it operates in property casualty, so home, auto, buildings, and much, much more. It's a very fascinating line. And then in the life industry, where um, in some markets, life and health, another market's more specialized in life. Um, in the U.S., we're one of the largest life reinsurers, if not the largest by enforced size. Um, just by in terms of history, we also have a very robust investment division. Um, we are a publicly traded company. The home office is in uh, Paris, uh, with a, a rich history in uh, in Europe, and then expanding either through acquisition or organically in the United States. Um, you know where, where SCAR has been present for many years, but it acquired two large operations and expanding um, in the Asian markets where there's, there's very significant growth in those markets.
0: So, Richard, tell us a little bit about how SCORE partners, right? Let's kind of let's start at the big, broad level, because whenever we talk about partnerships, there's so many ways that, that companies partner together from a, from a big macro perspective. How does SCORE play in partnerships?
1: Yeah, so I... I would say at a macro level, you know, making sure that there's a good fit between what we're trying to do and our intent and our strategic intent and the company we're partnering. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to partner unless there's there's a real fit. I'm, I can speak a lot more about how we've partnered locally in the U.S., which I would say takes three forms. Um, one is just strategic partnering because you know you, you, there's a good fit and you want to bring something to market and it makes sense. Uh, partnering with our clients and really helping them solve solutions. And at times, um, we've done uh, partnering where we, we actually invest. Uh, we do an equity investment. We take a participation. Those are situations in which we feel that the um, investment is going to be able to be used for more kind of market-wide approach and, and to be able to take that, that investment, if you wish, and to, to bring it as a solution
0: to our clients. So Richard, whenever you talk about partnering with your clients, you're not talking about end-user customers, right? As, as, a, as a reinsurer, if you would, unpack that a little bit more of, of who your clients are and then the relationships and the opportunities that, that you can work together.
1: Yeah, so our, our clients are insurance companies for, for the most part. Um, and many of our partners are from the insurance industry orbit, whether in property and casualty or life insurance. A lot of our, um, we, we do not, although we strongly, strongly support all activities that if essentially affect an end consumer and we're very conscious and that's something that's very uh, important to us. We don't have a direct strategy, so to speak, on the life side of actually uh, connecting with, with end consumers. So we're always working with our life um, insurers that we partner with on bringing solutions to market. So
0: it, it's a very good question. We are definitely a, a B2B organization at its core. Richard, you mentioned my favorite word, and that is strategic partnerships. or yes. are doing truly strategic work there. Um, talk to us a little bit. So you know, obviously I had the, the opportunity to work with your team for a number of months and learn a little bit more about your business from the marketing side, other aspects of your business and, and your team obviously does truly strategic partnering. Talk to us about what strategic partnering means for SCORE and for your team and uh, how how business leaders can use strategic partnering as a game changer?
1: So the first thing I would say, and I I mentioned this often, we cannot do everything that we ambition to do by ourselves. We're not, you know, if our real ambition is to eventually affect the life of an end consumer by having good products that are out there, given the nature of our model, which is a B2B organization, you need some some intermediaries who are going to allow you to to achieve that right so a lot of the partnerships that we have are are um, around alignment of purpose around alignment of capabilities and where each party is really bringing you know their specific contributions to make the value chain operate as a whole and where do you play across that value chain so we we have a very strong specialty in Product development in understanding risk in underwriting. We're not a distributor. We're we're not out actively distributing. So you know, partnering with a, a strong distributor who has the same value set. We're not a, a life insurer, so we don't have the the life insurance license, and we don't have the paper, and we don't you know. So and the infrastructure to administer and to uh, to handle so. You know, we need to be partnering um, with, with, with our clients effectively on helping them use their assets to get to the market. So um, strategic partnering for us is really around making sure that we're choosing the right parties that are going to allow us to get to where we want. Um, and, and we also, on the other side of it, we also have to be helping them get to where they want, right? It can't, or else if we're not both from an independent view trying to get to the same
0: place, The partnership's not going to work,
1: as you well know, Mark.
0: You know, you'd, you'd mentioned that, man, this is so true. And it's, I feel like I have to be reminded of it a daily basis. Uh, my my colleague, uh, industry colleague, Chris McChesney, says it best that there's always more ideas than there is time to execute them. Yep,
1: absolutely.
0: And I would say that also extends to partners. There's more good partner opportunities than what there are resources to execute those partners. And, and prioritization is, is so critical. I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about, you know, what's maybe a, Methodology, a philosophy that that you follow, to try to figure out who to partner with, and then how do we do those initial uh, phases of getting a partnership up and going? So, good good question, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I
1: think we've been approached by, I would say, more partnership opportunities that we can handle, and we would love to do them all, and we would, you know, would love to to, to continue, you know, supporting um, organizations as as a whole, but. You 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 know you reach a point where you don't have the staffing, the ability to to support it, the resources to to do everyone justice, right? To make sure that every partner feels that you're really engaged equally. And so, so you, the, there's only one thing you can do is really prioritize. And when you prioritize, you have to prioritize around some kind of scoring system. It could be you know, and and, and um, obviously we went through a scoring methodology that um, Partneromics developed, but it could also, you know, it could also be as easy as some back of the envelope work, where you're really saying, look, where does this fit? What is the size? Where where does it take us? Um, and you also have to align the importance of each value. Sometimes um, income alone can't be the only driving force because if you don't have a good strategic fit, if if working with the people on the other side of it, if if there, if it doesn't gel, it, it you know it's not going to work. It's going to be um, unpleasant. So you really have to make sure that there's various levers in which you're able to pull that that you know that will make the partnership a success. And and so if you're if you go into it feeling that hey we've looked at this um, pretty well, we feel that all the levers are are there, we feel that this is a good fit, you know then you you go in and you make the investment. And if not just being very honest with organizations that there isn't a fit now, maybe in the future. We have one example where we said no to a company maybe about a year ago. And and we were, you know, and I, I thought personally the organization was great, but I felt that they were too small at the time and, and you know, gave them some, some advice and some recommendations and uh, some contacts. And we're partnering with them now. You know, they grew and they recognized that maybe back then, you know we were just too big and they were too small for us to partner effectively and they they grew substantially and you know now we're able to
0: to um and we had the bandwidth to support them so and so many awesome parts in that example i think one of those is just the importance of fit uh knowing that it's it's better to say no or to walk away to not Mm -hmm. do the deal i mean i think a lot of times as partnering professionals we need to have more of a sense of obligation to provide value to our partners, not just be a taker, not just an extractor of value, but be a value creator. Know that you should feel a real sense of obligation to provide value to them Correct. and uh, really having kind of even the, the leadership. And I, I just I love that so much because we commonly you know work with folks or just just talking to different professionals about they take the opposite approach. And I think it's just one of those, the, those maturity, those maturation uh, exercises that we go through in building these teams, but we just think you know, more is better, bigger is better, bigger net. How can we make this net bigger and cast it out there and get more partners, whether it's on the sales side or even on the technology yes. side? And man, that is the fastest way to sink your ship. Absolutely, and the best way, the best way to increase
1: your market share is if you select the right partners and you invest in growing those partners. Because if all you do is that you bring on, call it a partner count and that you say, well, I have 20, I have 30, I have 40, but you don't have time to invest in them. You don't have time to co-develop with them. You don't have time to look at some of what might not be working well and say, hey, let's adjust, let's work on this. Because not every partnership is going to Work exactly as you predicted uh, initially. In fact, 90% plus are not going to work.
0: That's exactly right.
1: You know, they're going, some are going to fail, some are going to overperform, and some are going to dwindle along. But, you know, if all parties are committed, And you work together, you can usually lift that up and make something happen. And I think uh, it's it's just being mature about it and loosen and being very, very clear on executing on strategy and not getting distracted. And the wrong partnership can also suck up 60, 70, 80% of your time that you're losing from. It's an opportunity cost for every other potential partner existing or or potential that you have out there.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think this circles back to what you were talking about, scoring partners, scoring opportunities, building out a profile, what is your ideal client or what is your ideal uh, partner in this case, and then going after them and not not compromising to a point where either you are not getting the value that you need or your partner is not getting the value or won't get the value in this relationship that you need. And man, I think, you, you, I know you've heard me preach this, over 50%, I feel so convicted that over 50% of long-term partnership success starts and happens before we ever sign the deal. As partnering professionals, we do not do enough time on the front end building the strategy, getting clear as to what we need to do to be successful, communicating that within our own teams. And then now you know we, we send troops out to execute a cohesive plan and it's not a spray and pray, it's not a big net, it's not based on hope. Exactly.
1: And I remember, you know, and, and one of the takeaways I had from the time uh, we spent doing the course, my team and I uh, did do your, your course, I think it hit us when we started looking at the scoring of partners and we started thinking, well, based on these criteria, if we're trying to not be biased, well, some partners are not as strong as partners as we thought and others, maybe there's more there, right? And that allows you to kind of refocus, resegment, bring a different approach to the market, invest a little bit more time and learn where to say no which is one of the biggest keys to succeeding is where to create space by saying no and prioritizing.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's totally burned into my brain, but uh, I have this quote from Steve Jobs, as there's many, but he said, you know, we have to say no to a thousand good ideas so we can say yes to a great idea. Yeah. And I think the point that you brought out of, we have to proactively manage and, and lead our partners to success it doesn't just happen. And if we don't give ourselves the resources, the capability to do that, because we're out signing new deals, and we're, we're spending time with the folks that the whole 80-20 is, is very real. But a lot of times in partnering, to your point, it's 90-10 or 95-5. Um, we don't want to be putting good time at bad. And if we're not really clear on who we need to be partnering with, why we need to be partnering, what that common vision is, the common goals that we're moving towards, we can muddy the water in a hurry. So, Richard, talk to us um, a little bit more about kind of innovation, right? Yeah. So, like just the term innovation and what that means. A lot of times, maybe whenever we think about insurance well, companies, you know, we just think well, about paying this premium, and it's one of those things we hope we never have yeah. to, to use, but but sometimes we do. But uh, InsureTech, yeah. technology in insurance space, uh, mm-hmm. innovation. I mean, so, so much of this is just really coming to life. Talk to us about how innovation is really starting to or continuing to make roots into the insurance yeah. space. So, maybe if I give you
1: some background around InsureTech, and you know, I was around when InsureTech wasn't even a thing, and InsureTech started to be um, effectively a term that was used probably back in 2013, 2014 which essentially was FinTech, so financial technology disruption companies that had been operating for you know um, more than 10 years, raising funds, looking to disrupt the financial services industry, saw applicability in the insurer in space and thus InsureTech was born. And then that started getting a lot more traction and a lot more uh, pull uh, in the market, especially in the property casualty space. Where it's a little bit easier, I'm, you know, and I, I don't want to minimize the, the difficulty and still point it off, but, you know, property casualty when you're working with connected devices, when you're working with um, sensors, when, you know, like it's, it's, it's one step ahead of some of the life practice, if you wish. Where more and more we're starting to see the usage of wearables, of, of interconnected devices, connected scales, connected, you know, um weight loss programs. I mean, all of which affects your your you know your your life and your, your overall health. Um and so a lot of companies that weren't from the life industry, and I'll sp- I'll focus on the life industry, started entering the life industry with an idea that, hey, we, you know. We can come in and we can um, kind of push the boundaries of some of what currently gets done, and it it, you know wasn't easy at first, but we started to see more and more adoption um, either by what I would call more traditional companies like insurers who were saying you know yeah we should be thinking about things differently from a technology standpoint, from a process standpoint, from a product standpoint, uh, from a capital management standpoint, Um, and there are companies that are leapfrogging our own ambitions that we can either partner with, who can give us these these capabilities that we can acquire, uh, that we can insource. Um, and then we started seeing, and, and at the beginning, like it, it often is, you start thinking, "Oh, this is just a fad. This is a trend. This is you know not gonna, This is going to go away," um, until it doesn't, and until it becomes mainstream, and until you need to you know change or die um, effectively by not raising up to the new standard the market is at. Um, And so, uh, you know, our approach to innovation um, is, and I know, you know, some groups have like a chief innovation uh, officer, but we we don't, we don't. Um, Not, you know, there isn't one person who's like, hey, this is the innovation individual, right? I I think it's more uh, mutualized and more spread across the organization where there are um, folks who are using innovative thinking to innovate and to do that across the organization allows the organization to become innovative versus sometimes i've seen and you know i won't name any names but i've seen like oh here's the chief innovation officer and and you're looking at the company you're thinking you know granted that individual might be very innovative but they're in such a small bubble and pocket and they don't have influence across the organization and no one is adopting that they're not making as much traction. So organizationally the company is not very innovative or considered innovative, but then you have this pocket of people who are like the innovators. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it definitely is a culture, at least from what I've seen. I mean, it's almost like you have to have permission as a culture, as an organizational culture to Play in the messy waters of of innovation, but that's where some some real paradigm shifts can can be born. But Richard, I think that's a great segue to one of the things that I was one of the many things that I was really impressed with about your team is um, the 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 broad background you know, that the different professionals had everything. My background is in economics, so I love numbers. But like the actuarial scientists, they were on your team. Yeah. But marketing, product, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, kind of a twofold question. Number one is what kind of advice would you have for executives or leaders that are standing up a team for the first time or really kind of putting some some foundation under under their, their, their new team? But then also the importance of having people with... Broad perspectives and the value that that brings for partnering. Yeah,
1: so um, you did meet our team, and you know, and, and not only are they diverse from a um, background, like so, like you mentioned, the, the academic background, but you know, a lot of um, a lot of gender diversity, um, a lot of um, different nationalities, people who come from different places and backgrounds. Um, and I think it has formed a super powerful, cohesive, um, engaging team that is looking at things from different vantage points. So we don't, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna say there isn't some tunnel vision sometimes, but I, I think that we're not operating with, with you know, a bias of, um, you know, a group of people that all pretty much uh, went to the same schools, have the same have degrees can you know, very hom- homogenistic uh, in their approach. So, so there's really different inputs that come in from different team members. And that's very welcome and, um, and is very embraced um, and you know, really having the teams feel like they can contribute. And I've often been asked, was that by design? Uh, no, actually, we, we although it's what we prefer. But I think what happened is we attracted members to the team and their diversity and their openness attracted other team members. That were also like-minded in terms of wanting to work in that kind of environment. When we recruited folks from the outside and they met team members, they um, same thing. They, you know, saw our team and went, "Yeah, this this is a place where you know they're they're. They, it feels like it's an environment in which they can come in and operate." In. And so it kind of had a um, you know created its own momentum of sorts. Um, and when we go out and we meet with um, partners on the other side of it. I think it also—it's um, more comforting for a partner to say, "Okay, well, this—you know—it's a diverse group. They have different backgrounds, so it's not all the same, you know, same kind of thinking." And um, and you could see even the the way that the team operates, um, and 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 that's actually given us a competitive advantage in working with partners who are who were very um, interested in working with our team because, you know, when you're ultimately especially in a services business you're dealing with people i mean that's 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 your product right your people their skill set their knowledge their background the confidence you have in the people that you're interacting with and if you're dealing with a diverse group of people you know chances are that one of the folks on the other side of the table is going to relate a little bit more with one individual or another individual and that's good that's great and it's how it should be so you know it's something that um, so thank you for asking, and um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we've been um, very happy about, and um, it's been a lot of fun to, to work with such a diverse team. Yeah.
0: I think it was Covey that said, uh, first, seek to understand, then to be understood. I think context is so important, and having a team that has you know, such diversity, it's a constant reminder of different perspectives, that's right, and it it hopefully uh, gets us that muscle memory to look at uh, you. You mentioned you know kind of tunnel vision. Well, we want to be the antithesis of that. We want to go into it eyes wide open, and really uh, make sure that we understand what we're what we're doing and how we're doing that. I think there's there's a lot of value, in when we talk about culture and the power of culture, and there's there's absolute value in in having shared values, and um, you know really being customer focused, being person focused being relationship focused wanting to be a value creator so we have those common values but having diversity of you know thoughts and opinions that we're bringing into the mix and setting at the table is absolutely powerful yeah. yeah one last question for you richard before we let you go here and i want to ask you to speak to your 21 year old self Okay. What kind of advice would you give to Richard as he was really getting, uh, really getting going into his career? Oh wow, um, that is a
1: that's a good one. So, one I would say save more because my 21 year old self, my parents
0: not- say the same thing. So, <laughs> so,
1: so my 21 year old self um, lived very well, but did not plan uh, ahead and didn't think that. Um, my 42 year old self would have um, a wife and kids who are getting ready to go to college. And so I would say definitely, um, you know, kind of plan for the future, look ahead, but just be very open-minded around um, what other people and um, are able to, to teach you and, and seek to learn. Um, and, you know, I think it's still applicable for at our age, but, you know, really just have an, an open mind. I, I, you know, thinking back to my 21 year old self, I was um, very, very confident and probably more sure of myself at 21 that I, you know, I should have been. Um, I'm, st- I'm still confident, but I'm a little less sure of myself at this age. And I'm a little bit more aware that, you know, um, that I, I might be wrong. And so
0: that that would be it
1: and, and and to use uh hair supplements and skin creams and all the other <laughs>
0: exactly exactly me too me too at least sunscreen if nothing else richard right. thank you so much for uh for for participating in this for being a guest for sharing your insights man it's been awesome uh, getting to know you and your team better and it'll be fun to watch score and your guys work as you guys uh, continue to grow thank you thank you mark i really appreciate it Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit partnernomics.com.